times where the passage I'm studying seems to be, ha- seems to be written uh, precisely for our exact moment. Thankfully, today is one of those times. Psalm 16 is not only a psalm that addresses the idea of resurrection, which obviously fits today with our celebration of Easter, but it's also a psalm that addresses God's ability to provide for us feelings of refuge, prosperity, security, and happiness in times of great uncertainty, even in the face of death. I'm not sure if there is a passage that could be more timely for today. So let's trust that the Holy Spirit will give us clarity on this passage and its message for our times. I don't think anyone would argue against the assertion that we are in a season of great uncertainty, instability, and fear. Unemployment claims over the last three weeks have numbered over 16 million people, which is more than twice that of the two-year period in the recession in 2008 and 2009. People are losing and at risk for losing their jobs and their businesses. Retirements and savings have been slashed in just a matter of days. We may even see, according to some experts, great depression levels of unemployment in these days. Hundreds of thousands of people are getting sick from COVID-19 with over 100,000 deaths globally. And we're still waiting for the surge here in most of the United States. I saw pictures yesterday as I was reading the news of, of mass graves being dug, large trenches being dug in New York City where hundreds of bodies are being buried, bodies that have not been claimed by loved ones or friends. At times, we've been anxious about our daily needs, evidenced by the fact that we have been going to the grocery stores and sometimes we see completely empty shelves. Frontline health workers in some places are facing sickness while working, working frantically uh, to help people who are in need but yet are without the medical supplies that they need to take care of people and to keep themselves safe. Bankers are working three shifts day to day and even on the weekends trying to service all of these loan applications that are coming in to save people uh, from losing their businesses. One expert stated conservatively that the United States will probably lose about 25% of its restaurants at this time. Obviously, I could go on and on, and I'm sure that most, if not all of you, are reading the same reports that I am. We are in a season of widespread uncertainty about every aspect of our lives. And the mental health toll on us is really unmeasurable. David Brooks in the New York Times last week asked readers to write in, uh, telling them how they were doing over this time. A week later, he gave the results. They were posted on Friday. He had over 5,000 people report in. Here are a few things that, that people told him. A student in State College, Pennsylvania, wrote, At first, the lockdown seemed like a lark. It's a chance for a particular college student to get out of some of his responsibilities. But now, he says, almost a month into staying here, I've been gripped by a deep depression. My appetite is very low, and I'm sleeping far too much to feel as lethargic as I do. 
Another woman explained, I'm struggling. I returned to my family's home earlier this year. I've placed myself back at the center of a highly dysfunctional household, generations of trauma, sexual abuse, alcoholism, depression, and anxiety. Then an additional person from Denver wrote this. I'm suspicious of others, and it's wearing me down. Why am I suddenly afraid of the mail carrier or of the food delivery? And it's not people who normally struggle with mental health challenges. People that are ordinarily secure and active and optimistic are literally brought to tears. A woman from Fresno wrote, I am normally a very positive person, outgoing, happy, and energetic. Definitely a glass-half-full person. However, lately I cannot get through a day without tears, often sobs. I am terrified for myself and my family and everyone in the world. All the things I love to do, I'm now afraid to do. Now these are not new experiences from a historical perspective, but they are new experiences for us. And as a culture, we don't have the resources to address them. The post-Christian secular world we now inhabit doesn't have the capacity to meet the deep needs that people are now facing. Some are even reconsidering their views on God. David Brooks reported that an atheist wrote that he is now praying daily, though he doesn't know to whom. Well, the people people of ancient Israel and the surrounding nations faced these types of challenges on a regular basis throughout their history. Disease, famine, war, plagues, droughts, and similar scourges were, were regularly described in the Bible and in the literature of the day. And Psalm 16 is a psalm written by one of its kings, King David, to his nation in the face of national disaster. The psalm begins as a prayer, becomes an admonition, turns into a testimony, and then concludes in prayer and praise. And the beginning gives us some indication of the circumstances of the time. For he asks God to preserve him as he takes refuge in him. David is seeking refuge from God for preservation and acknowledges that all of the good in his life that he experiences is from the hand of God himself. Now, David doesn't mention what the threatening circumstances were. But from the context of the psalm, it seemed to affect quite a few things. It seemed to affect their livelihood. It seemed to affect their health. It seemed to affect their physical well-being. It seemed to affect their long-term prosperity. And it seemed to even concern with their own lives. The potential for dying was in front of them. Now, ancient civilizations worshipped gods that were represented by symbols, statues, pillars, buildings, a number of other things. But these gods were represented by symbols that human beings made with their own hands. They were called idols. 
And there were many gods and goddesses, and each one of these gods or goddesses represented some aspect of, of life that humans depended upon for their well-being. So there were gods for agriculture, there were gods for sun, for the rain, for war, for fertility, for the, the crops, for the wine, etc. You name it, there was a god for it. And they would fashion idols and prescribe rituals and make sacrifices to these idols in order to manipulate these gods for favor. David admonishes the nation in the midst of this crisis, urging them to reject the temptation to follow these other gods, to to make sacrifices to these other gods as they grew in their desperation for deliverance, for preservation. He states that they will only bring more suffering and ruin. For himself, he would not even utter their names, nor would he make any sort of effort to make any sort of sacrifice. He would give nothing to these false gods. The worship of idols is an effort to manipulate what they believe to be gods or goddesses in order to manipulate their circumstances. To get what you want, you give more to the gods. And the relationship then with the god or the goddess is transactional. So if, we see the, if it's seen this way, why wouldn't the worship of gods and goddesses bring more sorrow, bring more ruin? They were man-made entities. They came out of their minds and they fashioned them with their hands. How as they as man-made things have the power to control the material world, to control the sun, to control the rain, to control other nations and other cultures? And then how could these man-made human things actually bring about prosperity and happiness? They would simply continue to require more and more sacrifices, more and more of an investment from the people that believed in them with no real gain. And eventually, the worship of these false gods would wipe them out. Now, in our culture, we don't worship idols in the traditional sense. But we do try to change, for the better, the circumstances that we're in so that our lives are better. We create economic and monetary systems in order to generate more wealth and prosperity for us. We use medicine and health care to improve our personal and collective health. We establish political and civic institutions and structures in order to establish laws for our protection and well-being. And undergirding all of these efforts and more is science, which is our ability to observe and learn and theorize and create all kinds of wonderful things in order to improve our lives. Now, in all of these efforts, our ultimate goal is what the Psalms call prosperity and happiness. We saw in the introduction to the Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, that those were the purpose of the Psalms, to generate prosperity and happiness. But we just can't go about doing that in any way we want. And in no small way are all of these efforts, our efforts through through our monetary systems, our political systems, our health systems, or science, in no small way, these things 
are what God created us to do. To work, to live, to make a world and to build lives for ourselves, for others, and to make improvements to those. But there are two problems, two problems that we face in our culture. First, to work at these things, which are good things in and of themselves, but to work at them and to see them as our refuge and to put our hope and our trust in them in order to provide and sustain prosperity and happiness was never intended by God. When we have done this, we have become idolaters. These things become functionally our gods. And the temptation to do this has been around since the beginning of humanity and is reflected in the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they pursued wisdom and beauty and prosperity independent of God. And this pursuit of prosperity and happiness through what God had created but independent of God himself, corrupted us and corrupted the creation. We cannot get away from the darkness and death that we and the world have brought upon us. Our false gods cannot save us. Now this experience of COVID-19 has shown to the world the failure of our false gods. Contemporary writers summarize these failings. A writer in the Atlantic states, This country, buffered by oceans from the epicenter of the global outbreak in East Asia, blessed with the most advanced medical technology on earth, endowed with agencies and personnel devoted to responding to pandemics, could have and should have suffered less than nations nearer to China. Instead, the United States will suffer more than any peer country. Another writer states that many will be tempted to see the tragic coronavirus pandemic through a solely partisan lens. The Trump administration spectacularly failed in its response by cutting funding from essential health services and research before the crisis, and later by denying its existence and its severity. These are both true, but they don't fully explain the current global crisis that has engulfed countries of varying political persuasions. As it turns out, the reality-based, science-friendly communities and information sources many of us depend upon largely failed. We had time to prepare for this pandemic at the state, local, and household level, even if the government was terribly lagging but we squandered it. We were hampered by our susceptibility to scientism, the false comfort of assuming that numbers and percentages give us a solid empirical basis. Now, this particular writer goes on to explain what could have been done, another solution to have been made, but there's one big factor in every failure and in every potential solution, people. And another factor is a corrupted world, a corrupted creation. We will fail, and we cannot control Mother Nature. Our failure in all of these ways is evident of the corruption in us, and the virus that wages war against us is evidence of the corruption in creation. 
We have put all of our trust in government, in science, in industry, in the markets, in institutions, in global complex systems of commerce and efficiency. And at this point, it would be hard to argue against the fact that they have all failed us right now. How do we know that we have put our trust in these false gods? And how do we know that they have failed us? Because our collective conscience and our collective mind is anxious, it's fearful, and it's insecure. They are not providing a sense of happiness and prosperity. Happiness, as we defined at the beginning of the series, being the possession of an inner peace and confidence with oneself and the world that empowers one to actively engage life with interest and skill, bringing fruitfulness, joy, and satisfaction to their lives. Now, David states that everything that he has that is good is from God. If we have left God and have turned to other gods, can we expect to experience a sustaining good? Especially when the ultimate sense of good from God, as described here in the Psalms, comes in the form of a sense of security, a sense of joy, a sense of peace, a sense of prosperity, and a sense of happiness, even in times when our very lives seem to be in jeopardy. Now, as mentioned earlier, David warned the entire nation to avoid seeking refuge in other gods than the true God, Yahweh, of the Bible. If they did, they would continue to suffer ruin. He then testifies to what God has done in his own life, and he does it in, in, in a way that he uses, he uses terms uh, reflective of material prosperity to give image to this. He says that the Lord is his chosen portion and cup, that the Lord holds his lot, and that God has established his boundaries, and that his possession is beautiful. What does all this mean? I see all of these things describing a person's station in life, their family, their work, their income, their possessions, their health, their security, etc., their whole life. David's saying, my whole life has been good because it has come from the Lord. And I dwell in his presence, and he gives me a sense of these things being good. Outside of God, we all pursue these things on our own, putting trust in false gods to ultimately bring us prosperity and happiness. David recognizes, and we need to recognize, that regardless of our portion, cup, lot, or possessions, whether they are great or whether they are small, prosperity will not follow, a sense of happiness will not follow outside of a life whose God is Yahweh, the God of the Bible. David sees that God alone is his portion and having God, all of these other things will fall into, his, and fall into place. His health, his family, his work, his possessions, what he needs to live and survive. God will bring all of these into place and along with them a sense of security and prosperity and happiness. 
So how does David do this? How does David follow God and pursue God and dwell in his presence? Well, he goes on to explain. He says that he seeks to dwell in God's presence and that he seeks God's counsel. God has given his word, and as we learned again from Psalm 1, the prosperous and happy man is the one who meditates on God's law day and night. Now, when we think of God's law, it may seem like we're stating, or that David is stating, that that God has this law, this, this list of a bunch of rules, and if we follow this list of a bunch of rules, uh, we'll prosper. Well, that's not an accurate understanding of what David meant by, by God's law. The law of God reveals God's efforts to create a world with people in it that he dwells with. And the law of God tells the story of God's effort to redeem this world and people from what the Bible calls corruption and oftentimes calls sin. So dwelling in the the word of God, dwelling in the law of God and in his counsel means that we read and we meditate and pray and we seek God for he is alive, he is a real being, he has disclosed himself to us. We didn't imagine God, God revealed himself to humanity through his word, through his law. And so we meditate on it so that we can learn how to fit into what God is doing in this world to redeem us. We deepen in the knowledge of God's word and counsel, which, which will then allow us to deepen in our knowledge of God's love for us in revealing and cleansing us from the sin and corruption that we bring upon ourselves and that the world brings upon us because we have loved and pursued false gods. Now, part of it is instruction on how to live life according to God's will that will, to some degree, keep us out of trouble. That is a part of it. But to have its effect, it needs to be pursued. The person of God needs to be pursued with an acknowledgement that he is the source of good in our lives, that he is the source of sustaining happiness and prosperity, and we have to go to God, not from the mindset of, of, of checking off a bunch of rules that we're going to follow and make sure everything's okay and then we'll be prosperous. We have to go to God with a willingness to, to submit and obey Him, to fulfill His purposes for us, not for Him to just be someone that we go to when we want our needs met, which is how ancient people worshiped other gods. When we had need, we, went, we would go to them. No, God has called us to follow and to serve him. In this lifestyle of dwelling in the presence and in the counsel of God, God reworks our desires. He reworks our wills. He reworks our orientations and leads us to a life in which we discover God's lot. God's portion, God's inheritance, God's possession for us. And in what God has provided through himself, we enjoy a sense of security and prosperity and happiness from him. Which then results in a true expression of gratitude and thankfulness, just as David recorded here in this psalm. It's not forced worship. 
You know, when we're, when we're kids, we're, we grow up, we don't really want to go to church, we'd rather stay in bed or we'd rather play or whatever, and we're kind of we're brought into a forced worship experience where we're sitting in the chairs or in the pews or whatever, and we are singing the songs that we are being led in. I'm not talking about a forced worship. I'm talking about an experience of, of happiness and an experience of gratitude, recognizing that God has brought these things into your life, and, and your worship comes from that overflow of joy. David also states that his flesh dwells secure, meaning that he doesn't feel anxious, it doesn't feel afraid of what is going to happen to him and his physical body, even in the face of death. He knows that God will not abandon his soul to what the scriptures called Sheol. Now, when David said soul, he meant that it's his, it's his spirit, it's his inner being distinct from his physical body. His physical body will eventually die and suffer death. But David knows that his inner being, his soul, is not going to be outside of the presence of God. And that's what Sheol represented. Sheol was the place of the dead outside of the presence of God. God and his presence is nothing but good. David knew that even upon death, he would enjoy the presence of of God forever and experience the good that God has. David concludes with a summary praise and testimony to God. He acknowledges that God has shown him the path of life. David didn't pursue his own life and bring God into it. David pursued God and God brought him into a path of life. And in that path of life, David says that he experienced an abundance of joy and pleasures that will never end. He has come fully into his portion and into his cup, which is the Lord. Now, we can't force experiences of happiness. We can't force experiences and feelings of prosperity. We can't force feeling secure in the midst of widespread upheaval that is even global in nature. We cannot force the feelings of safety and security when we face harm and death. These feelings come from inner resources. And again, our culture cannot and has not provided them. And yet, these things are what we long for. And we have a sense that we should be experiencing them. And that the anxiety and the fear and the depression and the insecurity and the discontent and the poverty and the uselessness and despair and all other forms of, of mental, mental and physical suffering that we experience and the sorrows that come from putting our hopes and trusting in these false gods we have a sense that these are not the way things are supposed to be. The experience of these is not right. It's contrary to what we know is good and should be and that we should be experiencing. It's time for us to be honest with ourselves, especially now about whether or not all of the things we have pursued for happiness and prosperity really provide it. Does our secular world, a world that is 
a world that supposedly is founded upon reason and science, does it really provide the happiness and the sense of prosperity that it seems? I think that if, they're, if we're honest, we have to admit that it doesn't. This world isn't meeting those needs. It isn't providing us with a sense of those things. We should turn from government and money and pleasure and, yes, science as our sources of hope, as our sources of trust in our pursuit of happiness and in our pursuit of of prosperity in our sense, in our pursuit of security. Do we continue to work at these things to build a world and lives for ourselves? Absolutely. But doing that is different than putting our hope and our trust in them for things that they can never provide. Now, we can ask the question, well, okay, does, does following God really work? It did for the writer of this psalm. And it has and will continue to work for countless others who have put their trust in God for experiences of happiness and prosperity. I was talking to one of our medical professionals uh, just, just yesterday. And he was faced with a lot of the stress and the hypotheticals and, and, and the pressure of, of what could be coming to Minnesota when the COVID-19 surges here and the cases surge here. And he was really overwhelmed. And he took a moment. It's a great testimony to hear. He took a moment. He went aside. He prayed. And he asked God to fill him with a sense of strength and a sense of his presence. And he said that he immediately was overwhelmed by a sense of security and, and happiness and the courage to continue to do what he needed to do. As C.S. Lewis said, if the things of this world cannot provide what we know to be good and what we're looking for, then we must be made for another world. And the promise of that world rests not only on the testimony of the writings of Scripture and the personal witness of others, but on the resurrection of the man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Ultimately, for David and for others who have put their trust in God, the foundation of their trust is expressed in what David claimed as God's ability to preserve his Holy One from seeing corruption. Now, the term Holy One is in reference to a promised descendant of David. God had made a promise to David that he would have a descendant who sat on the throne of Israel and ruled over Israel and the nations forever. And David understood that this descendant would reverse the corruption present within us and present, present within the world and eventually bring healing to the nations and peace to all the world. David knew that this promised human descendant would overcome the grave and conquer death. And that's why we celebrate Easter. The victory, God's victory, of life over death. And this is the ultimate proof of God's ability to provide what the world can't. 
the victory of happiness over anxiety, fear, and depression, the victory of vitality over sickness, the victory of security over vulnerability, the victory of prosperity over want and poverty, the victory of purpose and meaning over the wastefulness of suffering and death, the victory of Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, over corruption and death. The victory that all of us can enter into now in the midst of this current global crisis by turning to God and rejecting the idols of our world and believing in the victory of his son over the forces that continue to destroy us and continue to rob us of a sense of security and of peace and of prosperity and happiness. Amen. Let me pray.